Okay, today this is X-Series, Arundo Donax L, Candidate for Selection, Re-Metals and Saline Conditions. Today we'll be doing a brief review of the giant reed, which is Arundo Donax L, as a potential candidate for effective heavy metal remediation. This will be the first in a series of many articles on interesting candidates for various contaminants of interest based on the series Phytoremediation, Management of Environmental Contaminants, Volumes 1 through 6 by Avid A. Ansari, Sar Vajit Singh Gill, Rito Gill, Guy R. Lanza, and Lee Newman, editors. I selected this series since it's one of the few comprehensive evaluations of plants with documented microbial and fungal symbiosis for specific contaminants of interest that also includes actual field data for pilot implementation. This interests me. Usually, compilations don't do a serious amount of field study and this seems to have a very robust pilot data record. So, giant reed is a robust perennial grass. It looks like bamboo, smells like bamboo, can be utilized like bamboo, but it is not bamboo. It has a nice network of rhizomes and roots spread from around five to 30 centimeters in depth and over 100 centimeters long. We care about this because the more root surface area we can touch, the more remediation we can complete. So we like to look for plants that have a serious rooting bed uh, that expands over a certain amount of distance and penetrates deeply into the soil. For the example today, we're going to be doing red mud, um, but that red mud comes in these large dams that can be hundreds, you know, can be meters thick. So the trick is going to be developing soil conditioning processes that can touch not only the surface processes, but also deep within these red mud dams. But that's just the example for today. Uh, as part of a phytoremediation component program, you always want to look at rooting depth and access to water uh, be in order to get that maximum contact with your, with your soil to make sure that you're hitting your contaminants on multiple levels within the soil bed. So these roots are tough and fibrous. They're tap roots, making this a plant with some fortitude. And we care about that because these are difficult environments for plants to survive in. So we wanna make sure that these are tough little buggers who are able to penetrate deeply, broadly, have strong root systems resistant to weather conditions, um, and that they are able to be propagated fairly easily. And when I say propagate, because this is a monoculture, so this is a clonal asexual plant, so we would physically have to go and clone this plant over and over and over again to establish it and to grow it prior to planting. So that's why we wanna make sure that these roots don't mind being disturbed, that they're very resilient, uh, and that they don't mind being claved or, or cloned into multiple types of greenhouses and pilot studies and then replanted in these impacted environments. The reed itself is thick and hard, just like a bamboo. The reed can survive in water-stressed areas, saline contaminated soils, and it provides excellent biomass in just a few weeks. It's fast growing and doesn't mind heavy metal contamination in its soil. So the giant reed was tested in Mediterranean environments as well as in some saline conditions in wetlands. And we'll be using both of those for today's little thought experiment. In fact, the authors of this specific study looked at giant reed for the remediation of this nasty substance called red mud. So red mud, as I mentioned before, is the byproduct of aluminum mining and refining. 
The combination of bauxite, iron ore, caustic materials used to extract the aluminum, and typically has a pretty fierce pH at about 14. They dump seawater on it to drop the pH and recover the caustic refining chemicals. Then, industry either dumps it in the ocean or a river and hopes it doesn't kill everything right away. So some companies are nice enough to dam it in these huge slabs of muddy goodness that seems to work well enough until, A, it leaches into the surrounding soil and water systems, contaminating it forever, or B, it gets loose and goes on a field trip in a metal-contaminating, people-crushing lahar of doom and destruction. For those of you who don't know what a lahar is, a lahar is a mudslide, usually the result of some sort of seismic or water activity. So it's essentially a wall of mud that just sort of covers everything and eats it. So if you look at the pictures of some of the dam bursts, I think the article mentions one in Turkey, I believe. I could be wrong about that. Or Hungary. Uh, when those dams break, these are huge amounts of mud that roll over everything. And once those dams break, you can't control it. There's no... The, the whole surface area that is contaminated by that red mud is dead land. It's salted earth. There is no bringing it back right now. Like, as of, as of today, the remediation on it is basically just excavate the soil and dump it in a landfill. But that also brings up the same question of, like, we have these landfills full of toxic materials now that aren't going away. We have destroyed so much arable land and so much good soil through the use of landfilling of these toxic chemicals. And that still doesn't protect you against leaching and water contamination. So we're, we can contain the damage, sure, but it doesn't do much good for us over the long term. What we really need to do is find a way to integrate a cradle-to-grave life cycle so that these waste products do not destroy the earth that they're pulled out of. They're able to be recycled in ways that make sense. So today we're going to be looking at this red mud. So because of the giant reeds fast growth, significant biomass, hyperaccumulation of metals, specifically nickel in this case, and capability to grow in saline soil, this is one of the prime candidates for controlling the red mud scare. It's like if communism made you take a chemical decontamination shower and destroyed your water system all at the same time. Giant reed has a good translocation factor at 54.3. So a translocation factor is the ability of the amount of metal, in this case, to be moved from roots to shoots, and then we multiply that by 100. So that's the it's a partition coefficient that we then multiply by 100, to get this 54.3. Obviously, it works a lot like a percent, so if we were able to get 100%, we would have all of the metals that this little root contacted up into its shoots that then could be harvested for biomass. Although this 54.3 was a specific species of giant reed called Phragmites carca, so it's, it's different than the species of interest. So just a quick note there. That's a little bit of a logical hole in the argument. But this, uh, this translocation factor has a strong preference for nickel. Iron was less motivated at an 8.51% uptake as opposed to 114.12% uptake. Now, if we're talking about why that's 114%, 
the amount of nickel that the roots contacted is 100%. But there are microbial and fungal interactions that can actually draw additional nutrients out of the soil and can, tr and can concentrate them into the shoots. So what we may be seeing with 114% is this enzymatic and microbial, usually mycorrhizal activity that draws additional nutrients that the plant can use from surrounding soil into the roots and then translocates them. So don't automatically just throw out that 114% because you think it's, a, it's an improper argument. That value of translocation can be helped using those microbial symbiosis as well as expanding the root contact area. So if the roots are able to grow and propagate and uptake additional nutrients prior to the initial surface area contact that we were expecting, um, that's, that's one of the reasons that we could potentially get this 114. So its ability to be grown in saline conditions is particularly useful since, as mentioned above, seawater is the dilution solution to the red mud issues. The excess salinity essentially salts the earth, making most plant growth impossible without help, but the giant reed doesn't seem to mind. The further advantage to giant reed seems to be in its ability to restore balance to the microbial community in these heavily disturbed soils. So it doesn't do that. So I, this, this discussion is a little bit personifica personification of the giant reed. So it doesn't necessarily restore balance to the microbial community. Microbes coexist with their soil ecosystems and require a certain population of organic predators, fungi, and roots to properly integrate into healthy soil. The giant reed is a clonal plant, meaning that it reproduces asexually and can't be necessarily bred for specific effects using sexual selection. This does not preclude genetic engineering in controlled populations, however, and since the reed usually needs a growth period in non-contaminated soil to get its systems healthy enough to deal with contaminated areas, there exists a strong recommendation that the reed should be populated by greenhouse until a year or so prior to being planted in its remediation zone. So that means you give it a year of just healthy growing in the greenhouse in soil. <clears throat> this plant can also be grown hydroponically, but for the purposes of remediation, I think that we would recommend that you grow it in soil in order to generate these healthy ecosystems. So this year of growth could also develop the soil with microbial and fungal populations unique to Arundodonex. Essentially, it would not just be a plant transplant, but also a microbial transplant with active mycorrhizal species safely cocooned in the soil with root systems for integration into the contaminated area when the population was strong enough. So we'll essentially be giving them a refuge of this clean, healthy soil as a, as a pumping ground for microbial interactions that can then spread out with the root systems. So we're, we're giving these havens and refuges for microbial ecosystems to develop along with the root system, not just the plant, right? Because remember, we're interested in ecosystems, not just in plant behavior, because plants don't exist on their own any more than microbes do. So we need to make sure that these Creatures have whole systems to play in that can keep them healthy and resilient. So a final benefit to this little plant is the fact that not many animals, including humans, seem to like to eat it. Thus, the translocation of metals into its green bits would not pose a threat to animal or human life due to those grazers 
and its prodigious biomass production could be used as an alternate, alternative energy source or paper production. Bamboo has been used for paper production for years. Um, it is a little bit expensive, but it sure is a lot cheaper than just cutting down trees and, um, and ruining other ecosystems to be able to, to create paper. So I really like that idea. The alternative energies, um, well, there are a number of industrial uses for this material, including filters, biofilters, biofuels, and feedstock for bioenergy. So the biofuels, you can ferment this. You can, you can create an ethanol-based or a fatty-based microbial community that can be harvested for biofuels. And we'll go into that a little bit later. Um, there's an article that I like about that. But the feedstock for bioenergy, I mean, as we currently know, bioenergy is typically just being forests cut down. Like they say it's this green energy solution, but the cheapest way to, to promote bioenergy is just to cut forests down. So it utterly defeats the point of having a bioenergy because you're, you're killing forests. So if we were to have this type of field Phragmites, even though we're talking about Ardunodonex, if you were to have these fast-growing reeds that could essentially restore the biomass uh, over and over again, you would be reducing the amount of forest cut down to propagate this, the bioenergies. Now, the, the bioenergy also has a problem of carbon releasing and smoke generation. I mean, it's really dirty. So you have to fire it under very hot conditions, and that requires additional energy. So bioenergy is not great. <laughs> like if we're just burning it to boil water, okay, but then you've got to have all these special filters and everything tossed in there. And it can be challenging because you have to dry the biomass or whatever. So it would be better than burning forests, I think. But I think we all need to take a good look at what bioenergy actually is and the fact that it is not great. So in your minds, when someone says, oh, this is bioenergy and it's a green energy source, just hit the, hit the bullshit button because that's not usually how they run these plants. They're, they're just chipping forests down to burn wood like humans have done since the beginning of time. There's no technical technological advantage, and in fact, it's kind of working against the whole carbon sequestration and um, renewable energy argument. Even though trees are renewable, I fully get it. You can't cut down a forest just to burn wood chips. I, I think that is unethical. So, in conclusion, giant reed is a tough, fast-growing plant that shows very promising results for the remediation of many different kinds of metals and saline soils under a variety of environmental conditions, including water-stressed or water-limited areas, though its best growth is under wetland conditions. So, that uh, concludes today's mini-article. I will post this per usual. I'm probably going to stay with the X-Series for a while because there's a number of very interesting uh, nonfiction topics that I want to go through. And in this article, we mentioned some genetic engineering techniques that could be used to increase hyperaccumulation. So we're going to go into that a little bit more and figure out some of the basics of how to do uh, molecular genetics for plants, specifically for remediation and phytotechnologies.
So thank you very much. Bye-bye.